to be sovereign as a miner, you have to control the energy. I'm not being critical of bigger companies who are working cooperatively with the grid, but they're not self-sovereign. They are, they are essentially beholden to somebody else who controls whether or not they operate or not. And I think it's very important that the entire network not be in that situation. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, I have on Bob Burnett from Barefoot Mining, who is not related to me, at least as far as we know. <laughs> Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Joe. Nice to see you. And by the way, my grandfather's name was Joe Burnett, so um, I'm really glad to meet you. Uh, he, was, he was one of the heroes in my life, so uh, awesome. great, to, great to see uh, uh, Joe Burnett alive and well here. Awesome. Yeah, that's great to hear. Um, I guess for those that don't already know you from maybe Twitter or your company, what is your background before Bitcoin, and then how did that lead you into Bitcoin? All right. Well, in a, a sync, as succinct a way as possible, because I'm old, um, I came out of the personal computer industry. So um, in uh, 1986, I have, a, I have an engineering degree, electrical uh, engineering computer science degree. And uh, went to work in the personal computer industry in 1986, which, um, if you don't know the history of the personal computer, is basically the beginning of the personal computer. So um, I was very fortunate as a junior engineer to get assigned to the team and what I would consider to be the first true laptop computer ever created um, in 1986. Um, I was with a company called Zenith that was uh, called the Zenith Supersport. Um, and uh, uh, that kind of led me on a journey for the next 20 years in the personal computer industry, um, ultimately culminating at Gateway. Um, some of you may remember Gateway, uh, but I, uh, I ended up being the chief technology officer there, leading all the product development for that company. Um, this would have been in the, the late 90s, early 2000 era, um, where I reached that uh, that position. And, you know, quite a ride. I, you know, I like to say that, you know, obviously the, the people listening are primarily Bitcoiners. Um, but I never imagined getting a chance to be on a ride like the one I had in the personal computer industry. And you know, I'm so blessed to, to be here in the Bitcoin world because it's very, very similar that the, the energy the feeling almost of a revolution. I mean, that's kind of how we approached it in the mid eighties was, you know, this was a revolution, you know, and, and it truly was, obviously you can look at it in hindsight and say that, you know, um, like we like to talk in layers sometimes, you know, in, in our world, software layers and, and the layers of Bitcoin. And I, you, you might also, you might even say that the personal computer was kind of a base layer of uh, kind of everything. Um, so if you look very macro, the personal computer at kind of one at layer zero and then the internet on top of that and then you know bitcoin then laying on a couple layers above that so um so anyway um i uh, i left that industry in the mid 2000s i did a venture fund uh incubate an angel incubator sort of situation where it would help other technology companies um, it was interesting. Some of those companies still exist today and are doing interesting things in the world. But it it um, it didn't feel the same, to be honest. It was very, you know, 
you know, it, it could have been investing in dry cleaners, right? You know, and, and there's nothing wrong with investing in dry cleaning. That's an important thing in the world, but but you're not changing the world, right? You know, the next dry cleaner or the one that's incrementally better than the previous one doesn't really change the world. And so, um, like my wife will say, when I found Bitcoin, which I, I, I jumped in, I found it earlier, but I, when I really jumped in was in 2017. And it, um, it re-energized me, you know. Uh, and so, you know, because as, as you get older, um, you know, it's very easy to kind of fall into a rut. I guess this is kind of a thing. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people never have the good fortune to work in, in, in the PC industry or an internet company or a Bitcoin company. Um, anybody that's involved in any of those things, you should be just blessed. Count your lucky stars because um, most people go through life. Um, like I have, a, I have a friend who is marketing manager for a crouton company and so the world needs marketing managers for crouton companies, right? That's and it needs dry cleaners and it needs things like that. But but those people involved in those things don't wake up every day saying, "Geez, we're we're trying to change the world." You know, they, it, it's a very very different optics, and they're just they're just trying to get to the finish line, and they think about classic things like retirement. And um, you know, I don't I don't think about things like retirement. I don't believe in retirement. So, um, so anyway, um, the, the way I got involved was kind of in the back door. Um, like a lot of people, I actually didn't start in Bitcoin. I started in Ethereum, but I didn't start in Ethereum because I loved Ethereum. I started because in 2017, there was not really a source of professionally designed equipment. That's true in the Bitcoin world too. You know, if you, if you wanted an Ethereum rig, you, most people built them themselves or there were, there were kind of garage kind of hobbyist sort of people that made them. And um, I, I got an inquiry from actually an old gateway person who said, hey, Bob, I need 300 of these things. And I got two problems. One is I need them designed professionally. And number two, I can't get the chips. And so a little piece of computing history is that in the early 90s, um, when NVIDIA was a startup company, um, the very first company to design their silicon into a computer was Gateway. And so uh, me and, and um, I'm the CEO at, at Barefoot Mining. The president is a guy named Keith Thomas, uh, who was the head of desktop engineering at Gateway. Well, we called NVIDIA and we said, hey, by chance, do you guys remember us? Um, you know, knowing that if they did, they might want to do us a favor because we needed, uh, what did we we needed like 2,500 um, GPUs at that time, which was a fair amount. And luckily they did, and they remembered us, and they were grateful, so they said, we'll supply you with the chips. Um, and we, we won this deal to um, uh, supply these 300 rigs, which was a several hundred, uh, uh, a couple million dollar deal. So we basically started a company to do that, and... Uh, that company is called Divi Systems, by the way. And then we we shortly realized that other people had interest in these. So we started going to other people saying, hey, would you like to buy one too? We started to get some positive response, but most of the people who wanted them also wanted somebody to host them. They didn't want to run them, them themselves. So that... Um, 
that uh, that created barefoot mining basically so we said okay we'll start a second company first to do hosting but then realized that um while we did do that and we still do that that mining for ourselves was more profitable than selling these things to other people so we we started doing that about a year in um when i started to really examine cryptocurrency um and a, a, a backing up a little bit i do have a, a an economics degree as well and i had studied austrian economics starting in the early 2000s for a completely different reason than bitcoin just kind of dis basic story being just disillusionment with the financial system and the way it was working so i um, I found really the essence of Bitcoin at that point, and I realized I didn't believe in what Ethereum was doing, especially as they were moving away. They, they were being now vocal about moving away from proof of work and those sort of things. So, um, so we signed a deal with Bitfury, um, who I know a lot of you probably don't know as much about, but they are a hardware provider. Um, they still exist today. They're still doing hardware um, uh, to be the U.S. distributor for their Bitcoin equipment. So, um, so since then, we've, our focus has been, since 2018, middle of 2018, our focus has been Bitcoin. Um, and uh, we operate sites in uh, South Carolina, several in South Dakota, one in Nebraska, and a very small one in Iowa. Awesome, no, that's, that's very cool. Uh, I kind of want to like transition into like more about mining. I think that's, you know, an interesting topic, especially what's going on right now. Yeah. Um, you know, price has been kind of following since, you know, beginning of this year, late last year. Uh, difficulty though, you know, just hit another all time high. So minor yeah. margins are extremely compressed. How are you like thinking about that right now from, from your perspective? Well, um, it's a very weird time. Um, Clearly, it's a test of of operating efficiency and um, you know financial uh, soundness of the mining companies. Um, we're we're alive. I don't want to say that we're thriving, right? You know, we are alive. We're making it. Um, you know, we're fortunate that our our energy. Um, our energy deals, especially in South Dakota, are quite favorable, so we can keep our head above water there. And then um, our our facility in South Carolina uh, is a hydroelectric facility that we own, so we control our energy costs ourselves in that particular location. So we can we can survive. Um, but I would also say, you know, it if 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 we look at the early days of the personal computer industry too. Um, I know this will sound weird and I don't wish ill on anybody. Um, you and I both are representing two, two companies in the space. Three years from now, five years from now, the, the landscape will change. Um, there will be survivors, there will be losers, there will be mergers and acquisitions and it'll change. Um, it, it has to change. Um, the personal computer industry went from like in the late 80s, several hundred North American personal computer companies to the late 90s, 
maybe 10 of any significance and maybe another 10 that we're just kind of putzing along. So I think we're going to see a lot of consolidation. We're going to see a lot of winners and losers over the next year. And the things that cause companies to fail um, will surprise will surprise us. Um, that's just my my opinion and my assessment. I don't wish will on anybody. Um, obviously, you know we we all kind of like seeing a, a healthy network, um, but but as these winners and losers are uh, determined, especially the, as the losers come in, I think there's going to be a lot of disruption. And so I think one of the things that's happening right now is we're seeing we're seeing some of that play out, and and um, you know I there there are a few a few of the public miners. I think have shown some signs of stress. Um, you know, I can say that I know privately there are others that are really hurting and really in trouble. Um, and some won't make it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, it's definitely trying times in the mining industry, as you know, and probably a lot of our, our audience knows as well. I like how you have um, background in, in the personal computer space and, you know, you started like like you said, in the 80s, I think that's very like an analog analogous to what is going on in Bitcoin. I'm curious to know, like, from my perspective, you know, I didn't grow up during the 80s. I was 90s child. Yeah. Um, but I, I from from what I know, like there was the dot com bubble and like that was kind of it. Like there was one big hype cycle. And then after that, we kind of had, you know, a lull. And then after that, you know, Nasdaq's just done great since I don't know, like 2003. Bitcoin yeah. seems to like kind of go through like all of the many cycles like it went through a 2013 cycle a 2017 cycle and then a last year cycle was there anything like was that similar to the doc like the dot com or the personal computer space like were there many cycles in between the big cycle that i know of or not really yeah there were there were there was a big vetting as you said like that that early 2000s period the dot com bubble period obviously sorted out a lot of people. I think it's probably my speculation would be it's analogous to what's going on right now in our industry. But there were previous ones. There were previous smaller tremors. Um, and in the personal computer industry, uh, yes, similar, uh, similar. Um, there was a, a vetting in the the late 80s. Um, there was another one in the mid 90s. Um, and and then the personal computer industry, at the same time as the dot com bubble was occurring, there was a another crash in the in the PC market that forced realignment. But and what you saw was like obviously because the personal computer industry, um, you know, you saw changes in things like distribution patterns. You saw changes, dramatic changes in the customer base, um, from primarily just you know, high-end business use at the very beginning to extremely consumer-sensitive at the end. Um, and, and what you also see, like there's a great book out there. It's called Crossing the Chasm. And uh, it was written in the 90s. But what it, what it talks about is, is like at the company level, put the economy and the industry trend aside, that as companies grow, they face barriers. So let's say, um, let's say Joe, you and I started a company tomorrow. We start a new mining company tomorrow. 
So um, early on, between the two of us, we're doing everything, right? And and let's say we're killing it, right? Um, we're we're selling miners. We're we're putting up a site. Um, we're working twenty hours a day, but we're killing it. At some point, we decide we want to grow, so we we hire eight other people. Now we have ten, and we had another. We 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 find a site um, in another state, and we're gonna we're gonna do that. Well, what we've done is we've 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 created almost a logarithmic increase in the complexity of the company in doing that, like because. It used it used to be like, hey, Joe, I'll do this and you do that. Um, but when you get to ten people, there's probably now a, a management layer. There are processes. If if somebody buys something or or a customer has a, a support issue, like those sort of things, like we have to make sure that it doesn't fall through the cracks. And so, you know, some companies fail right there. Like they just they. You know, like guys like you and me, maybe we would we would blow through that. I think we would. But then let's say we keep going. Now we have 100 employees, and now we have eight sites on two continents, and we have employees all over. Well, now there's another logarithmic change in complexity of the organization. Most companies fail because the management team can't grow its capabilities as fast as the company is trying to grow. And so they they fail in part by by growing in too fast and taking on too much complexity. And you know, without saying any names, I mean we see I think we see some of this in the industry somewhat where you'll see a company who's just killing it, they're doing really well. And they can't almost say no to business, like, hey, no, we're not ready for this. And and we saw that we saw that in the personal computer industry. Companies would do and it might just be like one small mistake. Like the and the mistake like we saw in the early days of the PC industry was let's say a company that sold um ten thousand computers a month in a given year, then um might think it was going to grow 100% the next year. So it goes out and it commits early to a bunch of hard drives and CPUs. And it buys them early to lock in the supply. And then the sales don't show up, right? They've consumed all their cash and they have inventory that's depreciating like crazy. And so now they're screwed, right? They're they're competing against people who, who um, they have bloated inventories at high prices, and other people uh, have um, new inventory at cheaper prices. It's very analogous in part to I think what <laughs> we see today, right? And um, that killed a whole bunch of PC companies. Yeah, no, I can. I never thought about comparing it to early PC days, but I'm sure like the next gen machine was, you know, significantly better than the previous gen machine. Exactly. And that's kind of, you know, exactly what's happened in, in the Bitcoin space. Yep. Um, you wrote an article on, on Bitcoin magazine about wild horses um, and, and Bitcoin mining specifically. Yeah. What are those and why are they important to Bitcoin? So if we look at the 
entire landscape of Bitcoin, um, I, I believe we can, in broad strokes, place mining operations in three categories. Um, there's what I call rabbits, which I think are, you know, they're the heart and soul. They're the plebs out there who have a mining machine in their, an S9 in their garage, or, you know, um, a small business owner who's got two S19s in the back room somewhere, you know, chugging away. Um, those are the rabbits. They're all over the place. Um, they're small individually. They don't matter. Collectively, they're very important. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, we have the elephants, the riots and the marathons and, you know, these massive sites that are going up. Um, uh, 50 megawatts, 100 megawatts, 200 megawatts. And I use the term elephant because they are... Um, they're obviously big and powerful, but they're also hard um, hard to put up. They take a long time to grow, uh, and they also um, they're also easy to hunt. And I'll, I'll get to this in a bit. Rabbits, on the other hand, like I said, they're small and fast. They're difficult to hunt. Right, you could you can you can kill one rabbit. You can't kill all the rabbits, or you could call them cockroaches too. Right, like there's just too many to ever, ever, ever find them. And then there's the horses, are the sites that they may be a few hundred kilowatts, they may be a couple megawatts. Um, they're 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 actually fairly easy to put up, fairly fast to put up. They're still powerful. Um, they're harder to find. Um, they're harder to hunt. Not as hard as a an, uh, uh, a rabbit, but way way more difficult to hunt than an elephant. Um, and then the term wild. So the term wild basically means um, off grid. If I simplify it, it means off grid energy or being able to control at least have direct control over the energy. So, and, and captive means um, on grid, beholden to somebody else for your energy source, okay? So a wild horse is an operation, kind of you might think of it as a medium-sized operation where the, uh, the power source is controlled by or owned by the miner. So why, why go through all this? Well. I think if you if you look at it first, this wild versus captive thing. Us in the Bitcoin world, we're we're, we're often very motivated to be self sovereign. So, at the base layer infrastructure of what we do is mining, um, and and to be sovereign as a miner, you have to control the energy, like right. So. Um, uh, as, as Joe knows, you guys don't know, I live in South Florida. I live in the Naples, Florida area, and I just got hit by a hurricane. Okay. So if you, if, if, um, if I had had a mining operation down here right now, um, there's no way I would be operating. Um, and so I think when we look at like, like I'm not being critical of, of, um, bigger companies who are working cooperatively with the grid, 
but they're not self-sovereign. Like they, 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 you know, there's a whole argument there. I, I agree with some of it. I disagree with some of it. But, um, but they're not self-sovereign. They are, they are essentially beholden to somebody else who controls whether or not they operate or not. And I think it's very important that the entire network not be in that situation, that we have to think about the security of the network as a whole from the perspective that things happen. Hurricanes like Hurricane Ian happen. So if we have massive geographic density of the world's mining network, uh, it can be greatly impaired by uh, environmental issues. It can be impaired by um, regulatory issues. It can be Im Im impaired by terrorists or people who have ill will on us. They can blow up substations. They can do things like that. Now, some people will probably, and I have, I have, I've talked about this publicly before. Uh, and, and as you said, I wrote an article. I've been criticized, saying, "Well, you're, you're talking about." really infinitesimal possibilities. And there's a different article called Satoshi's Heel, which kind of takes these concepts and says, you know, what happens if? But I think the thing to, to remember is that we're not trying to build a network for this year or next year or even the next decade. We are trying to build something that will last for centuries. At least that's how I approach it. So... When we look at the possibility of different events, we have to think about the possibility that they occur over, let's say, several hundred years. Like over several hundred years, could the political environment in North America change? Could the could a EMP happen? Could um, an earthquake or tsunami happen? Like these? Uh, could a war happen? There, there are all kinds of different things that. I think if we want to build a truly secure, immune network that runs the world's monetary system, then we have to we have to reach that point. We're not there yet. And I think, getting back to your question, why are wild horses important? Why am I passionate about it? That, by the way, is the focus of my company. Um, is that I think if we have a bunch of wild horses around the world, then even if the elephants are hunted or brought to extinction, that there's enough power from the horses and the rabbits to make the thing still work and be secure. Yeah, no, I definitely agree that wild horses are you know extremely important to the Bitcoin network. I'm curious to know your thoughts on, like in your experience building your, your different sites, what do you think the incentives are for building elephants or building horses like wild horses in the future. Like I can see how maybe riot or Mara or, or core scientific can raise capital more easily, maybe have more economies of scale, but then I can see, Hey, if you vertically integrate, you find the cheapest energy that may not be super scalable. Yeah. Maybe you have, maybe you can sustain the drawdowns longer in a, in a better way. What are your thoughts on like the advantages yeah. and disadvantages of both? Yeah. Well, let's start with, you know, the advantages of the elephants. Okay, the elephants, um, there is some operational efficiency that comes with scale. So um, definitely they can achieve that. And, and like anything, especially because they're captive, you know, they can, 
they can buy in volume, and at least for 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 now, buy in volume at a discounted rate. So they can get the PPAs. Um, they consolidate these sites into one place, and they um, they can achieve some operational efficiency, right? Um, as an example, I've I've said this publicly before. Said like, hey, if if I could do one 100 megawatts watt site or 25 megawatt sites, I'll take the 25 megawatt sites. Now, there's other people that would make the opposite choice, right? And and that's okay. Now. To put up, but let's contrast those. Maybe that'll help answer this question. So if I, if I want to put up one 100-megawatt site, here's what I have to do. First, I have to raise the money. Let's say, just to, for argument's sake, that's a um, quarter of a billion dollars. Okay? I got to go get financing and raise that money. That doesn't happen like that, right? That takes time. Then I have to... Um, I have to identify the site and I have to secure all the infrastructure to make that happen. So I have to hire the people. I have to get the ace. It's really, it's really like taking a huge bite of an apple at one time. You're shoving the whole freaking apple in your mouth at one time, right? Now, if, and, and let's say that takes 18 months to happen. Okay. I think that's fairly typical, something like that. Um, now, if, if I decide to do 25 megawatt sites, I can approach that by getting the money in smaller ch- pieces. So instead of, uh, now maybe it takes me 300 million instead of 250, just say that. Okay, so there's some capital inefficiency, but I can start immediately. And as soon as I raise the money for the first five megawatt site, I can go and now I'm up and running. So... I can, by the time, uh, we may reach the end point at a similar time, or they may get to 100 megawatts faster than, than um, I would get to 100 megawatts. But I would also have tens of megawatts operating before they had anything operating. And I can do it kind of as I go. I never have to take on this massive task. Now, once we're operating, um, what happens? If, if Hurricane Ian hits the site of the 100 megawatts, I'm toast. If, if Hurricane Ian hits, I maybe lose three of, of um, uh, 20 sites, right? So I create insulation. I, like for, so part of my philosophy it goes back to like my gateway days. So when I was at Gateway, we were building about 9 million PCs a year at our peak. And we had, we had about 13 manufacturing facilities all over the world. And um, part of that was by design to put the manufacturing facilities as close to the consumers as possible. But part of it was because we knew that over time things would happen political issues, wars, storms, employee strikes, whatever. And that if one or two of them went down, we had plenty of capacity to, to fill in for the others. Now, as you know, Bitcoin doesn't work quite that way. If you lose three of 20 sites, the other sites can't make up for the three that you lost. 
but the point being that you're still doing something. You're you've, you you you're insulated from that. So um, you know that's part. And and then if we you know to further insulate ourselves, we talked about wild energy. So if you can do things, at least in part. I don't think it it, it can necessarily do it in whole. Um, if you can own a hydroelectric facility, if you can find stranded gas, if you can find you know, if you burn tires or you go off a biomass or, you know, whatever it is that floats your boat, that's fine. I'm open to all those things. Now you've created this insulation and, and you're not subservient to a master. Because again, if you go back to, like, if we look at Texas, all my friends in Texas, please don't ups be upset with me, but I think Texas, Texas right now has very strong support for the mining community. Um, we're, we are not in Texas, but I am looking at Texas. I've spent time there. I'm not opposed to it. However, I won't put all my eggs in that basket because I can envision a world, um, a possibility that's, that's non-zero five years from now where um, AOC is the president, Beto O'Rourke is the governor of Texas, Elizabeth Warren is the secretary of energy, um, and there's a massive pressure on mining. It's why I don't want to be 100% in the U.S. too. But, you know, you can, things can change, and they can change in relatively short periods of time. And then what happens? Um, you know, or I, I said this before, I, I, I hope I'm wrong, but there are, Bitcoin seems to draw the ire of the environmental activist community strongly. I, I think they're wrong. I think they're misguided. But um, they have definitely shown, at least factions of that group have shown in the past, that they're not beyond forms of violence to make a message. And if, and if I was one of those groups, or I, I, would be, I would be shocked if inside one of those groups there weren't people saying, I, I'm not saying they were going to try to kill people, but I wouldn't be shocked if they're saying, hey, let's go blow up a substation over here or let's go do something to impair these mining facilities. And what we'll do is, is um, one, we'll stop it, and two, we'll call a great attention to it. Um, and I believe there's going to be a lot of those kind of attacks. I, um, an article I haven't written yet, um, I started, I haven't finished it, it's, I call it the unholy trinity. And the unholy trinity is... Basically, the central, the central bank slash governments is one piece. The environmental activist groups are the others. And then we have the, I don't know if I can say, uh, I don't, uh, I'll say the altcoiners over here. Um, <laughs> try to keep it family for your show. Um, but, you know, to date, they've all attacked Bitcoin in some way. But not in any coordinated fashion. They haven't worked as one yet. I believe we're seeing the beginning of them working together as a trio to attack us and our industry. And, um, you know, that, that's a, a, a real concern um, because, as you all know, we, we, we don't have a consolidated voice. We don't have a, a formal lobby. We don't have a PR group. We don't have these sort of things. It, it's just people like us, things like your show, to try to educate people. Um, that's all we have to fight with. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Like, 
it is interesting that there's always I think I think the Bitcoin community in particular, yes, obviously we don't have like a centralized like leadership group, which I think is a, is a fantastic thing. But I think a lot of Bitcoiners and, and Bitcoin miners are very like adversarial thinkers where they're preparing like, hey, like the probability of this happening might not be very high, but it's important that we think about it and consider it. I think core developers like building Bitcoin were like are great examples of this. They're like, hey, how how can we make sure Bitcoin doesn't get attacked? I think I saw this on Twitter the other day. Satoshi mentioned the word attack in the white paper like 20 something times. So oh, he I didn't very, know that. That's awesome. Yeah, he was very, I guess, cautious or, or, or thinking about, hey, how can someone disrupt Bitcoin? And I think that's kind of like what you're doing with, with the mining industry. Yeah, because, you know, I think um, I'm an engineer, right? And so I, I designed things like laptops. Um, yeah, real world example is like, um, you know, th there there are things like um, Tesla cars that are catching fire occasionally, right? So I, I don't know the exact numbers, but as a percentage, they're really really small. But it they 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 do happen, and when they happen, they're quite catastrophic. So let's just play and just say, you know, we hope Bitcoin lasts for a thousand years. So. Um, and, and then after that, maybe a new monetary system will be created, but it's going to be the best thing for the next thousand years. So whether you're a core developer or you're part of building the mining infrastructure, custodial solutions, whatever it is that you're designing, if, if some threat exists that has a 0.1% chance of happening, that the normal public would discount threats of that level. But if you're trying to build something, it has a 0.1% chance of happening in any given year, then in a thousand year period, it's almost certain to happen. So if we wanna build things that have that level of reliability, you know, we have to build it for way stronger odds than, than that. Because I think some of the times, like if, if any of you ever are interested, there's an article I wrote called Satoshi's Heel. It talks about these really small possibilities that I seriously doubt will happen in my lifetime. But the possibility does exist. And so if we just mosey on thinking that um, these things will never happen, then um, it... I think we're we're fooling ourselves and we're setting ourselves up for it. Because I can say, by the way, down here in Florida, again, having been in Hurricane Ian, Ian um, nobody here thought it would happen here. Even though, like, we're 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 in Hurricane Alley, but you know, I, I told Joe earlier, I got five feet of water in my house. I never in a and I'm a half a mile from the ocean. I never in a million years thought that that could happen, but it it just happened to me last week. So. Um, so it can happen to Bitcoin too. Yeah, definitely. One more question that I yeah. got to drop. Um, and I, this is kind of a funny question. So I know your Twitter handle is boomer BTC. And I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> what do you, what do you say to boomers maybe in your, your Florida community, since you said everyone that lives around you or before we t started recording, you mentioned everyone that lives around you is, is older than you. What do you say to them about Bitcoin? Like when you say, "Hey, like I do Bitcoin mining," how do you explain Bitcoin to them, and like why? Why do you, do they care, or what do they say back? Um, it's hit and miss, first of all, because I think that 
there's a certain percentage of people that are just closed. And, and I think a, a boomer that has, let's say, a 70-year-old boomer. I'm a young boomer. I was born in the last year, uh, 1964. So if I'm talking to like a 70-year-old and they've already, quote-unquote, made it in life, they're living in a nice community, they got a big bank account, and so it's really hard to, um, to convince them. But what I, what I will, I'll still try, of course, and the angle I'll take with them is like, hey, um, the world has, has been very unfair, and the monetary system penalizes people. You know, there's a, there's a child being born in Pakistan or Iran or Ecuador right now, and the global monetary system that exists today won't recognize them. So I'll try to get them to say, you know, can you step away from yourself and your situation and imagine you're that person and the world that you're going to enter? Um, and then try to explain them how money is broke, how the unbanked are, how the unbanked work. But that's really the only way that I found it. I have to almost hit them at an emotional level. Like, you know, what about those people? You know, and, and because they're not real open to the Fed is evil, that central banking doesn't work, that, I mean, those sort of things... You can't, you can't lead with that. It just doesn't work. The only thing I can, can try to do is tear on their heartstrings and say, it's not fair to those people. There has to be a system available for those people that gives them a chance to participate. Um, but it's hard. It's hard. Boomers. Um, the only thing I can say is, you know, boomers are probably only going to be convinced by other boomers. So, you know, um, guys like um, uh, 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 Lawrence Lepard, uh, Greg Foss, um, they're buddies of mine. We have kind of a little um, circle of, um, you know, elderly guys in the industry. And I think that, um, you know, one of the roles I think we have to play is, is to try to be that voice to them. Because I think they will listen um, at least for a little bit. And if we can hit them emotionally, then we have a chance. Um, you have to hit them emotionally first, in other words, and then maybe, then you can take them back through. If you, if you can get on that, and you, know, you can hook them emotionally, then you can kind of back into some of the other things. But, um, but it's hard. Yeah, definitely. That was an interesting way that that you you took that. I didn't expect you to say like, "Hey, like Bitcoin is like this, you know, inclusive, you know, technology that empowers everybody in the world and has more of like an emotional appeal." I didn't didn't expect that. But that's interesting. Unfortunately, we're gonna have to wrap this up because I gotta jump uh, to another call. Um, but uh, where, like, the audience, where can they find you? Where can they learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, um, I'm on Twitter at uh, boomer underscore btc. Um, Barefootmining.com is our our main site, um, and uh, you know those would be the probably the two easiest ways to reach me. Awesome. Well, glad I could have you on the podcast. I think this is like an awesome conversation about Bitcoin mining. I mean, this was this was great. Well, thank you. I, I really a pleasure to to meet you. We'll have to figure out if we actually are related at some point. So definitely, <laughs> definitely, we will. <laughs> All thank right. Well, thanks, Bob.
Okay, bye-bye.